Please stand for the reading of God's word. This first passage is from Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 12. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who has already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better both than in a, but better both than is one the one who has never been born, who has never seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This is too this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And our New Testament passage is Romans 12, 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Will you please? As we have not done in a while, but have done from time to time, take a moment as a reminder that this is not a merely passive exercise like watching TV, but it is an active one that requires and requests your engagement. So perhaps you would ask in a moment of silence for the Lord to speak to you to give you needful things that can be useful on Tuesday afternoon at 3, and maybe even this afternoon as well. Join me.
Father in heaven, hear the silent prayers of your people as they ready to listen to you speak even through me. What a stunning grace, even a few seconds of silence is, O Christ. We are bombarded with noise, static within, shouting and blipping and beeping and shining without. And it's sometimes hard to hang on, to hang on to you who is holding on to us, to hang on to the wise of our endurance through struggle, through hardship, to remember why we are here and what we are for. And so we're asking, will you cut through all the noise convincingly and make us, with your gracious speech, more alive than we've been in some time. Come Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. A little boy went to visit his grandmother. She told him, yes, you may listen to the radio as you go off to bed. It was in the early 40s, 1943 to be exact, in a rural Kentucky town in a fictitious story. And Andy was told by his grandmother, who knew he wanted to listen to the radio because he didn't have one of his own at home, will you make sure to wash up real good before bed? Yes, ma'am, he said. Because though Granny was a good and gentle woman whose chief pleasure was in the happiness of others. If she should start to try to wash out your ear with a washcloth, she might bore clean through one side and to the other, and I didn't want to risk it. This little boy at his granny's house knew by instinct that his granny, even if her determination to get him clean was fierce, that she was a great and gentle woman whose chief pleasure was in the happiness of others. That's a nice axiom and summary for what we might glean from the preacher's observations today in Ecclesiastes 4. Learning to find one's chief pleasure in the happiness of others. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. And I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they have no comforter. 
this observer is looking about and he's noticing what can't escape his gaze, seeing what's hard to unsee. That there are people who are collateral damage of those who live with a chief pleasure in life to be their own happiness. And therefore, whenever one's chief pleasure in life is his own happiness, is her own happiness, then you know what happens? Somebody is going to get wrecked in the process. Somebody's going to be used. Somebody's going to be discarded. Somebody's going to be forgotten. Somebody's going to be left bereft of something they need, whether it's money or food or merely someone to wipe the tears rolling down their cheeks. It's a tragic verse. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. These folks who had the capacity and desire to make their chief pleasure their own happiness and didn't care who was hurt in the process, you know what they were also able to do? They actually had the authority and the power to implement their wishes, which means more damage, more destruction, less comfort. And so as a starting out observation today, this preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is recognizing something that the New Testament wants to suggest to us is a reversal that happens when the image of God starts being put back together. This problem in and of itself is not comprehensively solvable by next week and certainly not in our times. But there can be cups of cold water given to parched lips. And there can be Kleenexes and hugs giving to shoulders that are shaking in grief and faces that are smeared with tears. And so we've juxtaposed this with Paul's words in Romans 12 where he says love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hate it. When you see the results, the nasty, demoralizing, disfiguring results of people being forgotten, people not being taken care of, people being discarded so that someone else can get on top, so that someone else can make their way. You even hate it when you realize it about yourself. And then he goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. See, people who are being remade in the image of God, who are putting off the old man and who are putting on the new, who are putting off the old woman and putting on the new, clothing themselves with Jesus Christ, are going to be increasingly inhabited by a heart. Like the saviors who, like this preacher, looked and saw the oppressed and he saw that they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so he said to his disciples, let's hightail it out of here before those dirty people get some dirt on us. Okay, that's not what he said. He had compassion on them. His trouble, or their trouble became his, their tears his, their aches 
his, his guts rumbled. That's what compassion is. With the unwellness around him. And so as a starting point today, as we think about making ourselves an aspiration as those who are inhabited by him who would not stand far off while people suffered with no one to comfort them, while people, he did not stand far off but came in near and dwelt among us. And we are the people who have been inhabited by that life. And we have an opportunity here to start to ask the Lord Jesus, help us to mourn with those who mourn. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Let us have an emotional reaction that is commensurate, that's lined up, not with our own preference, but with the need of the woman across from us, the man next to us, the child before us. It's an interesting thing as you think about seeing the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter power on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter that throughout the scriptures there's this this insistence that one of the ways God mediates his comfort is through his people. Paul says, God who comforts the downcast comforted me by the sending of Titus. He recognizes in place after place that so much of the the tender touch of Jesus himself will come come to children and come to the poor and come to the immigrant and come to the widow and to the orphan and to your next door neighbor and to your spouse and to your child through your hands, through your voice, through your eyes, through your ears. And so it would be a worthwhile endeavor for a lot of us who are Jesus' people who are helping and, and working with him to set ourselves up against the ruin of the world, who are noticing with the teacher the tears that are not meeting with comfort, the cries that are not meeting with soothing, the need that's not being met with friendship. To start to ask, are we running away from those things or running to those things? It's very easy to run away from them or to just live away from them and not know that they're happening. It would be a worthwhile endeavor, for instance, for you who are on social media. I guess, I mean, there's probably at least three people here on social media. I'm not a demographer, but I mean, maybe four, four people. But you realize, perhaps, that there are ailments in the world. Mm -hmm. These are the worst times there ever have been and all that. It would be worthwhile, for instance, you who have heated commitments about immigration on either side to pray that your commitment would not be a merely abstract one, but that you would see those who have no comforter, that there would be names in your head when you hear the word the poor and you find yourself in a discussion, the poor need this, the African-Americans need this, racial justice demands this, the immigrants need this. When you're talking about a class of people, widows and orphans and a socioeconomic class that's not yours, one place to start is to pray that Jesus Christ would open your eyes and give you 
a name for that class of people that you speak abstractly about. Some of you have names. I know it. You're up close. That's why you have a different perspective. That's why you talk about these things in a different way. You can tell who knows the least about these things by who's the most strident, ardent, angry, and loud. Remember what he said? The less you know about a thing, the more sure you can be about it. The further you are away, the more ardent and clear you can be. The closer you get up to it, everything gets fuzzy. Remember, facts up, fuzz up, wise up, back up. You've heard the story of our own Jameson Griffin. I think I told this years ago. It's been a while, so maybe all new people. Jameson was a teacher, a coach, had a great deal of success down in Dalton. Had a boy on his team who was an illegal immigrant. He came here as a child. Didn't have many discussions or votes about that. He's a baby. And he got into a little trouble at school. The new Georgia law required the school to report that, whereas historically the school had just handled it. He got involved with the legal authorities, which meant his deportation proceedings ensued, and he was going to be sent back to a land where he knew no people, because all his people were here. And Jameson got very involved in his life. He was one of his players. He loved him. He was not a class of people. He was the image of God who was his friend who had a name. And he saw his tears and he saw his fear and he understood his situation and he knew he had no one to comfort him. And so all the other issues surrounding him didn't matter. And Jameson got on CNN, which is an interesting thing for Jameson. This dude says things. He's hilarious. And he's compassionate and he's passionate. He's wise and he's good and you don't know what he's going to say. But he said this great line. I saw the end of his interview on CNN about this case. He said, you know, when I started out with all this, I was very clear on the immigration issue. All these things, he said, are black and white until they become flesh and blood. And I was like, dang, Jameson, drop the mic, man. They're all black and white until they become flesh and blood. Christianity is a flesh and blood religion. It doesn't deal very well in abstractions. It tells us to love our neighbor, not everyone. You cannot love everyone. You can try to love your neighbor because your neighbor has an address and body odor. And they have to shave and brush their teeth. Who knows who everyone is? When you hear the word widow, orphan, think about somebody of a different race, uh, think about an immigrant, you think about the poor, do any names come to mind? It would be worth asking, oh Lord, would you let there be names come to mind so that I might... I might join you in anguish alleviation, wiping the tears of those who have no one to comfort them. And then he goes on, after 
trying to decide who's better off in this world. People who are people who are long dead or people who just never got borned. He's trying to figure that out. He's saying, yeah, I don't know if you're better off dead because it's so hard or if you're better off never to have been born in the first place. Probably better off not to have been born in the first place. He has a very sober view, to say the least. A sort of eoric despair that may feel foreign to young people in here, but those of you who are older who recognize a sort of exponential accumulation of aggravation, sorrow, distress, dismay, like inventive badness. Things can happen to your body when you get older that you didn't even know to worry about. Like you're worried about some things right now in this room. There are people. Everybody in here is worried about something probably. Why's my elbow doing that? Like you don't even know what to be worrying about. There's so many more things. You're welcome. There's so many more things that can go wrong with your body than you've even begun to imagine. There's so many more things that can go wrong with your family, with your job, with the economy. So, next time you're worrying, think, I wonder if I'm worrying comprehensively enough. That's a way of doing judo on your worry, you see. Like, if I can't worry about all the things there are to worry about, then maybe I shouldn't worry about any of the things there are to worry about, but then that would be taking Jesus too literally. But he says, okay, then I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is vanity or meaninglessness, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He recognizes another thing that happens with regard to our work. That if you have as your chief pleasure the happiness of yourself and not the happiness of others, then what's going to happen is that others are only going to be fuel for your consumption. They're going to be what propel you. In fact, in our world, probably it's the case that most nations and schools and peoples, like they wouldn't be anywhere near as good as they are if they didn't have some close competitor that's almost nearly as good as they are. The narcissism of small differences, it's called. America and Russia and their arms race needed each other for that. All the SEC schools in football need each other. They need to see the new football practice facility and the jumbo juice carts that come around. I don't know. Jamba juice? I don't know the words. They need each other so that they can keep getting better, so they can hold out and say, look what they've got. We need that better. We need to one-up them. And I saw that all labor, all achievement, spring from man's envy of his neighbor. See, envy, he recognizes, it's another thing that Paul's trying to combat as Christians when he says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You've heard me say before in sermons on the seven deadly sins that envy is the exact reverse of that. Envy is when you rejoice at the mourning of others. And you mourn at the rejoicing of others. 
It's when something good happens to somebody else and it makes you feel sad inside. It makes you feel diminished. It makes you think, why does everything good happen to them and none of it happens to me? That's envy. Envy is the thing that when you're watching something spectacular happen and you're just like seething with bitterness at the person to whom the spectacular is happening because it means to you just another evidence of the awfulness of my life. You're thinking about all the wrong stuff at all the wrong times. That's what envy does. With envy, you want everybody else to be just as miserable as you are. Says Frederick Buechner. And so he's giving us this idea of thinking, okay, when I'm working, am I working just to put it, to stick it to my neighbor or to get more than my neighbor or to crush my neighbor or to throw aside my neighbor? Why am I working? Why am I toiling? Why am I sweating? Why am I straining? He'd say it's vanity if it's only to beat the guy next to you. When you're on the outside of a thing, you can see these kinds of things very clearly. When you hear the University of Alabama winning another national championship, and you hear Nick Saban being interviewed and saying, and you know, you don't believe him. We're going to enjoy this. He's like, we're going to enjoy this for the next 17.37 hours. And you're like, you're not going to enjoy this at all, my friend. We're going to enjoy this for the next 24 hours, and then we're back on the trail, back on the recruitment trail, back to work. we got to do it again. And, of course, that's what your life can feel like, too, when you get stuck in this hamster wheel. You're just racing and racing and racing, and you're not really sure why. And this gives you an interrogation question. Am I... Am I racing and racing and racing to, to get at somebody, to do better than somebody? That's a silly reason. And he goes on more with work. Uh, people who don't have their chief pleasure in the happiness of others, but in themselves, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. See, the fool doesn't realize he's working on behalf of someone, like Christians can and so what they do is they say, well, they've seen through the matrix. That's what's going to happen. A fool who doesn't work, who folds his hand and ruins himself, he says, I'm not going to jump into all that. I'm not going to be a part of the rat race. I've got better things to do than sit in a cubicle all day. I've got recliners to sit in. I've got video games to play, my friend. I'm not going to waste my life on something stupid like insurance. I waste my life on something stupid like a video game. Just kidding. I have nothing against video games uh, in their place. But it's real easy, isn't it? To say, like, I don't want to compete. I don't want to get in that envy thing. So I'll just, I'll just hunker down here. And I'll make my life about whatever small pleasures I can get. And he's saying what the fool does is he, he winds up ruining himself. She winds up ruining herself because she's not living for the pleasure of anybody else. She's not making her aim to make anybody else happy, just herself. And, and in the end, she just sort of consumes herself. She's not giving herself to anybody. And then 
the frantic person, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. There's this recognition that there's a way that you could get contentment in your life, but it's probably not going to be by reaching some finish line or another. Because that finish line will keep moving on you. That ordinarily, the way to get contentment is to decrease your desires, not to increase your accumulation. I had a man tell me who had, had lost really everything. He had had a pretty privileged life, a pretty awesome family, made a lot of money. Things happened. He lost all that. And he told me, and I believed him, when he was renting a house and making much less money and much more alone than he'd ever been, I've never been happier than this. And I believed him because I think for the first time in a very long amount of years, this fella was not hustling to keep a house of cards from getting blown over by the wind. He had been frantic and rushing, trying to make sure, can I pay for this? I need to make money here to pay for this, to pay for this, to pay for this, to keep up with them, to keep up with them. And he was thinking, if I could just have this and keep this and hang on to this, and he was a nervous wreck trying to hang on to everything. And then he lost everything. And he felt pretty good. It's better to have one handful of just enough with tranquility than to be a nervous wreck chasing after the wind. And again, I saw something else meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son or brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He had, as a song once said, hungry eyes. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This is a miserable business. See, there's, with regard to work, you, as a Christian, you get this reorientation that lets you practice and live to think, you know, what I'm going for here is to have my chief pleasure be the happiness of others, like Granny. My chief pleasure is the happiness of others. And so when you think about your work, when you think about what you're up to, you can ask yourself these questions. Uh, One, who am I working for? And Christianity gives you this reason. When the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, a new creation began. And Aslan was on the move, and winter started working backwards. The Apostle Paul would say, that means for the Christian, all of the work you do, even for that nimcompoop boss of yours, you're really not just working for her or for him. You're working for the Lord Jesus Christ who sees all. It's what's changed vocational life for many people to realize that everything I do, when you wash the dishes at your house, when you go pick up groceries, when you do a meal for someone else, it's not just them you're serving, it's the Lord Jesus Christ you're serving. And you, got to, you get to think, look where God has placed me, look where God has assigned me, look what God has handed off to me to do. And it teaches us also to work for the good of others, that we have somebody in mind when we work. Do you realize how different this is as a 
way of thinking about vocational guidance, you who are young. You're thinking about what am I going to do? And most questions about what am I going to do start somewhere with myself. What are my passions? What do I love? What do I want out of life? And those are not illegitimate questions. They're really not. They're just woefully inadequate questions. And they're no good place to, to, to end. Because anybody in here who's done their work for a long time, who might have gotten into it with passion, or they might not have gotten into it with passion, knows that what keeps them in it, well, maybe it's money, but a, a lot of times what keeps them in it is love. They develop competencies and they know they're benefiting someone. That might be their family, that might be their neighbor, it might be their church, it might be their client, it might be their customer, it might be their students, but it's love. It's a really powerful motivator, even better than fear, even better than money. And so if you can start to think, I'm working for someone, and when I go out into the world, what am I going to do for someone, and how has God equipped me to serve others for their benefit Even the Apostle Paul told slaves or former thieves when you're being transformed from the tarnished image of God being made new in the image of God. Stop stealing and work. Make something useful with your hands so you may have something to share. If you have a job you hate, think of your church. Think of your community. Think of people who are depending on you. You're going out. And working that they might benefit, not you alone. Can't get to the best part. We're closing up here. I'm going to close thinking about this idea of Granny's virtue, her chief pleasure being the happiness of others. It will lead us into alleviating the distress that we see among us or around us or even moving toward it when it's not around us, asking God, can you give me connections and familial connection, relational connection with people whose names I may know and whose troubles I may help carry because two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Help me to believe, oh Lord, that I'm working on behalf of someone for you. So that I go about my work and I'm not doing it completely in vain. And I work for the good of someone, namely others. Maybe my community, my church, my family, people who are depending on me. Even my customers and my clients. There was a man who wrote, a Catholic fellow who wrote about being at the MTV Awards. And I was very interested because I had been there. I've never been to the MTV Awards. But he was looking around, and he said, I weaved through the gaggles of fans and found that many, stifled by the humidity and the proximity to strangers and cursing the poor sight line, were getting restless. They were outside. They were near the red carpet. They were standing there eager to lay their eyes, to feast on some famous person. Someone blasted Ariana Grande's recent hit, God is a Woman, on their iPhone, holding it in the way every earnest, every man 
holds up boom boxes at the end of 80s movies. John Cusack, say anything, you know the. And early in the night before Migos and Snooki and Nicki Minaj and Kylie Jenner, we did not take our eyes off the sparsely populated carpet for fear that we'd, that we'd what? That we'd lose a staring contest? That we'd miss seeing the backside of some minor YouTube starlet? And he says this profound thing. Quotes a girl who has her hat on backwards in the stands. She says, there's so many people looking. But there's no one to see. There's so many people looking. Where is Taylor Swift? Ariana Grande is not so grande. We can't see her. There's so many people looking, but there's no one to see. This is part of the problem, part of the angst, part of the worry, part of the toil, the vanity, the meaninglessness, the frustration of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. There's oppression, there's no one to see. There's distress and no one to comfort. There are tears and no one to wipe them away. There's work and no one to work for. And yet... We can see further down the corridor of time. And we can hear the echoes of Isaiah. When we hear the Lord looked. This is the Lord who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. The Lord who looked over the city of Jerusalem and he he wept over them himself. The Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no one. And he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. Oh, today we look on with the teacher and also with the Lord and realize that our great comfort is the Lord's being appalled. That we have no one to rescue us. And so he stepped down into the comfortlessness and into the stress and into the veil of tears and he took them on himself. And when he saw the widow who had lost her son and he saw her weeping, having lost all she had, his heart went out to her and he gave her back her son as a picture of what he's going to give back to all those who grieve and have lost and have suffered injustice. And even now, today, we have this comfort. Everyone's looking. May we get justice. Maybe if we scream really loud about injustice, it'll go away. Maybe if we bully people into being gracious to people who aren't like them, they'll do it suddenly for the first time in human history. Maybe if I work really, 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 really hard, I can... I can stop sorrow from happening to me. Nothing will happen bad to anybody if I can keep stepping. I can make enough money. I can build enough fortresses. But at the end of that, there's no one to see. But for those who see the one who sees them and says, come to me, me who is appalled at distress, the God of comfort, the Father of mercies, 
who comforts those in distress so they may comfort others. Come and learn of me. The one of gracious speech, the one of tender heart. Come get a heart from me like Granny did so that you also may find your chief pleasure in the happiness of other people. You realize in finding happiness of other people, she gets a chief pleasure. That's Christianity's trick. That when we disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, it's not all cost. There's plenty of gain from the God who can make up all. Amen.